My name is Maria Del Pilar Caladine, and I'm the daughter of a Guyanese man who came to Britain in 1961 as part of the Windrush generation. Although my father was born in the Caribbean, his own grandparents were Indian, and they had arrived in what was then called British Guyana in the late 19th century. My father's grandparents were part of a system called indenture, which lasted from 1834 to 1920, and which brought over two million men, women and children from India to other parts of the British Empire to work on sugar, rubber, tea and cocoa plantations. Apart from the Caribbean, indentured labourers were also sent in large numbers to Mauritius, Fiji, South Africa, Sri Lanka and Malaysia. Indentured labourers would typically agree to work for periods of three to five years, and while the terms of their agreements differed in each colony, the indenture would normally include provision for a return passage. By far the majority of indentured labourers never returned to India and their descendants are part of what I refer to as the Indian indentured labour diaspora. Despite their geographical distance from each other, this diaspora shares food, songs and cultural expressions that are unique to their experience as an overseas Indian community created by the dual forces of empire and capitalism. One of the most important of these is the concept of Jahaji Bai, the brotherhood of the boat. What this meant is that friendships between immigrants who made the crossing from India to the countries to which they would be indentured became familial. When we look at the ways that academics, novelists and poets of indentured heritage have worked together internationally on projects to increase knowledge about the system, we can helpfully use this metaphor to describe a virtual international Jahaji Bai engaged and passionate about understanding the system of indenture and its legacies. Today I'd like to talk to you a little more about the system of indenture and make particular reference to its history in Guyana. I refer to the history of indenture as a hidden history of the British Empire and I think that one of the most important reasons that indenture is not spoken about as part of Britain's imperial history is that it sits uncomfortably with a preferred representation of the empire in which abusive systems of forced, coerced labour were abolished with slavery. But even before slavery was officially abolished and in anticipation of its termination, planters in the Caribbean were already considering countries from where they might source alternative means of cheap labour. While indenture was not slavery, it's important that we view it in the context of the world of the 19th century plantocracy, who had assumed the right to the labour of enslaved Africans. This sense of privilege, of entitlement to disposable human labour would mark the way they would treat the Indians on the sugar plantations. In 1836, John Gladstone, the father of the man who would later become the British Prime Minister, wrote a letter to a Calcutta firm who had recently supplied indentured labourers to plantations in Mauritius. Gladstone owned two plantations in Guyana and in the wake of the end of the apprenticeship system, he wanted to know if it would be possible to engage Indian labourers on the same terms in the Caribbean. The letter that the firm wrote back to them is quoted often by historians and I think that one of the reasons why is that it encapsulates both the dehumanising language that was used to refer to Indians and which was a feature of the period of indenture, but also the level of deception that was involved in the system. The letter reads, 
Within the last two years, upwards of 2,000 natives have been sent from this to the Mauritius by several parties here under contracts of engagement for five years. The contracts, we believe, are all of a similar nature and we enclose a copy of one under which we have sent 700 or 800 men to the Mauritius. And we are not aware that any greater difficulty would present itself in sending men to the West Indies, the natives being perfectly ignorant of the place they agree to go to or the length of the voyage they are undertaking. The hill tribes, known by the name of Dangas, are looked upon by the more cunning natives of the plains, and they are always spoken of as more akin to the monkey than the man. Well, once in Guyana, a trope that was used heavily throughout indenture, and in particular by the Guyanese plantocracy, who were keen to prevent any interventions by the British government to halt the importation of indentured labour, was that of improvement. Colonial authorities argued that the process of migration bettered Indians, and they spoke about Guyana itself as a place that offered equality of opportunity, which when we consider the fact that those with plantation interests were literally governing the country, we know can't be true. This issue of how colonists wrote about indenture and indentured Indians versus how Indians actually experienced indenture was part of the subject of my doctoral thesis. But it wasn't just about language. Indenture as a system was exploitative and did involve coercion. And I would like to explore more here about how people were able to survive in spite of it, and most importantly, how they resisted it. Historical sources tell us that there were many flaws in the system of recruitment that meant that people who were vulnerable and separated from their families were frequently preyed upon by recruiters. We know that many people left India confused about the terms of their contract or the distance of the place that they were travelling to. Famines caused or exacerbated by colonial policy left people with few choices. It's important to say, however, that sometimes indenture offered people a possible route of escape. And while surviving oral histories tell tales of being fed lies by recruiters or being tricked, others show that people made active informed decisions to leave India in order to escape family strife or personal difficulty. We know, for example, that occasionally people would indenture to one colony, complete their indenture, and then re-indenture to another. There is no doubt that the reasons that people found themselves under indenture were diverse, but what is beyond question is that whatever motivated individual departures, once they arrived on the plantations, they were subject to conditions and treatment, which meant their existence could fairly be described as semi-penal. Indentured Indians, for example, needed a pass to leave they, the estates they were indentured to and were subject to harsh labour laws that, in the very worst examples, saw them imprisoned when they were too ill to work. A major obstacle in preventing fair treatment for the immigrants at court was the fact that the colonial elite, magistrates, judges and plantation owners were all known to each other, frequenting the same clubs and socialising at each other's houses. While some colonies had a protector of immigrants in place, the powers assigned to such an authority could depend on the whims of the colony's governors, and some governors would do what they could to limit the powers of the protector, rendering him ineffective. It's important to highlight the fact that the indentured did not passively experience the system and its injustices, and the ways in which they chose to fight back range from individual to community acts of resistance. Important research by the Indian Fijian academic Margaret Mishra 
has shown us how Indian women form gangs to protect each other from predatory overseers. In Guyana and Trinidad, aggressive overseers were frequently tackled on the plantation and calculated uprisings on estates generated by oppressive work condition, working conditions and changes to contractual agreements triggered significant inquiries. One area of research I was particularly interested in as a PhD student was how far actions taken by Indians on the sugar plantations combined with intervention by colonists to destabilize indenture. Looking in particular at the case of Guyana, a riot on a plantation in 1869 triggered a long letter from a district magistrate to the colonial secretary of state, arguing that the abuses perpetrated against the indentured laborers on the plantations coupled with the lack of access to an impartial justice system, meant that this riot was not merely an indication of what was to come if things didn't change. This letter and the charges the magistrate made ultimately launched a commission of inquiry that saw British officials and an independent observer from the Anti-Slavery Society arrive in Guyana to investigate their substance. Wherever indenture operated, it did so with resistance from laborers, whether this was through individual acts of feigning illness or even committing suicide or collective acts like plantation uprisings. While the abolition of indenture has traditionally been represented as an idea that emanated outward from Indians in India, an important area of future research must be to consider how much the sustained resistance of indentured laborers across the British empire was itself an important factor in abolition. This resistance is not just restricted to labourers, because by the end of the 19th century, descendants of indenture had begun to access education, and the beginning of the 20th century in Guyana and Trinidad saw many professionally qualified Indians using the letters pages of the local newspapers to air their concerns about how Indians were being treated on the colony sugar estates. I want to end this lecture by suggesting that we can still encounter resistance to indenture in the pages of contemporary literature. How can I say this about a system that was abolished over 100 years ago? I'd argue that many works of literature, short stories, novels and poems by descendants of indentured labourers function as a challenge to what I've previously referred to as a dehumanising language that we encounter in archives and which marks colonial representations of Indians under indenture. Many writers have chosen to combine fact and fiction to imagine the lives of their indentured ancestors and they've used literature as the tool with which to explore their familial history. The writer Moses Nagamutu, a Guyanese of South Indian heritage, wrote a novel based on the fragments of his family history, arguing that history needed to be recovered not only by scholarship, but also by acts of the imagination. In 2018, the first international anthology of writing by descendants of indentured labourers was published by the Commonwealth Writers. Many of the contributors to this book took inspiration from their own family histories. Although I've referred to the history of indenture in the British Empire as a hidden history, I want to stress the impressive work that's taking place globally, much of it led by descendants of indentured labourers, to explore, analyse and interrogate the system of indenture and its legacies. Concerted work by historians, literary scholars, musicologists and sociologists has contributed to the emergence of indentureship studies, with 2021 seeing the publish of the publication of the first ever academic journal dedicated to the subject.
This journal, as well as a new annual lecture in indentureship studies, are important steps in taking this hidden history of empire out into the open.